Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm delighted to be with you again today. Today, we are going to be talking about invention and talking about inventions with one of the world's most uh, prolific inventors and extremely relevant to pretty much what everyone here uh, listening uh, either has or is listening to on that device right now, Eric Fossum. Uh, There are three things I want to say uh, by way of introduction. Number one, parents, this might be of interest to you. Uh, Eric Fossum uh, got his uh, uh, kind of the spark started from this Saturday program he did on math and science. Uh, he even says it changed his life, and he started to learn about uh, started, started to learn about coding that he ended up doing in uh, in college, and uh, all of that is uh, under the category of uh, let's call it experiential learning as opposed to maybe traditional book learning. Experiential learning is learning by doing. And uh, it turns out that, as uh, Eric Fossum is going to explain in, uh, in our conversation, uh, creating free time for your kids to just kind of explore, to do, uh, not have them in uh, constant uh, after-school programs and... Um, um, and and little 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 time uh, vi- you know with friends and uh, uh, of course you spend time with your friends but leave them alone sometimes it's okay uh, uh, it's uh, it's not a bad thing you know, I was visiting my uh, uh, my niece and my great niece who is six years old uh, just uh, not that long ago and she uh, we the adults were all talking or having dinner or whatever and um, she was just playing off by by herself on on the side and comes back with this beautiful drawing and uh, a whole idea she comes to me and she says you know uncle sid uh let's make a dictionary now you know where where does this stuff come from it's by leaving a kid alone uh, with some tools, with some supervision, maybe, uh, but with an opportunity to create something. We call that experiential learning. So parents, put that closer to the top of the list. Uh, let's stop programming our kids as much as we do. Um, number two, creativity. So much of the SIDCAST is about creativity. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. Uh, and one of the things Eric Fossum uh, tells us today is that Every one of us, uh, by our nature, by, 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 by the fact that we are human, are, are inventors. We're naturally creative. And um, that's something we probably forget. A lot of people probably think, well, you're either born creative or you're not born creative. But I, I, I don't think that's right. And Eric Fossum makes a strong case about how each of us um, are, uh, are inventors. And every day we're inventing something. We're creating something. It's not like somebody gives you a list of things to do from the morning you wake up to the, from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep and, and you go through the list and say, okay, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow a, a roadmap. Along the way, we improvise, we create, we adjust. And, and, and that's, that's what invention is to some extent. Big part of it is obviously trying and failing and not being afraid to do that. That's something we've talked about before, and we'll talk about it again with Eric Fossum. But creativity, everyone listening to this, well, yes, you are creative. Eric Fossum told you so. And then number three, well, what, the, what, does, what did Eric Fossum do that makes him so, so famous? Well, this is, uh, this is a guy that, you know, he worked for, he was at Caltech, he worked for NASA, and he invented um, uh, certain technologies used in cameras. And when I say used in cameras, I mean used in, uh, in cameras. Uh, I, ask, I ask him, as you'll hear, you know, how many, how many um, products or devices out there have your technology built in? And he, his answer is something like uh, uh, in the billions. Yeah, that's right, B for billion. Uh, because if you have a uh, Samsung phone, uh, an iPhone, uh, lots of other uh, mobile devices, 
Uh, it turns out that the camera technology is something based on his research, his patents, his work along the way. You talk about a, an impact. And, you know, in 2020, the Mars rover is uh, um, uh, um, NASA sending a, um, a spaceship to, uh, uh, to Mars, and the Mars rover is equipped with, uh, the, with uh, the CMOS technology, the technology that Eric, Eric Fossum created. So Eric Fossum is a member of the National Academy of Inventors. He's a member of the Inventors Hall of Fame. He's won the Exceptional Achievement Medal at NASA, which is really something because the whole place is pretty exceptional. And in 2017, he won the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Uh, and that is, uh, that's also been won, just so you know, by the people that created the World Wide Web. So we're talking about a pretty amazing uh, and interesting and fascinating uh, person. So uh, a great conversation today, relevant for parents, relevant for people who are interested in creativity uh, and anyone interested in, in, in invention. Welcome to the SIDCast, and uh, my guest today is Eric Fossum. Eric, good morning. Good morning to you. This could be going on in the afternoon, too, so good afternoon as well. Who knows when somebody's going to be listening. Um, so, Eric, you grew up in Connecticut um, and, I guess, near Hartford. What, uh, what, was, uh, what were your parents uh, um, about in those days? I mean, what did they do for a living? Yeah, well, my mom was a, uh, was a mom and housewife, and my yeah. dad was a uh, young engineer at that time uh, working for Pratt & Whitney, did he bring home any engineering-type issues or problems for you to kind of get into, given where, what you ended up doing in your life? Uh, I, not so much at that. I'm talking about way back. Yeah, uh, right, right. I do remember, like, using old blueprints as drawing paper for... Oh, yeah? Just, that was just around the house? Just around the house, yeah. I guess uh -huh. it was scrap paper or something like that. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. But then uh, uh, later, he actually did a startup company. Uh -huh. And uh, doing electromagnetic clutches and brakes. He was a mechanical engineer. And uh, I have a lot of not-so-fond memories of those days, oh, well, ironically. Why? May I ask why that is? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Um, he wound up uh, renting space in, in the old Collins Axe Factory in Collinsville, Connecticut, mm -hmm. which probably hadn't been occupied in 100 years. Oh, boy. And guess who got to clean out all the <laughs> ugly spots in that rental space? Oh, wow. So uh, why not? Talk and, about chores. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, wiring lights and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, and then later, actually, a part that I do appreciate, uh, first of all, because it was good to make money, but also it was very, uh, very good educational experience, was working on the uh, assembly line, making machining parts. Really? And, and doing things. How so. old were you? Old enough. I don't Teenager? Get I don't want to get him in trouble. But uh, <laughs> It's got to be a statute of limitations for your yeah. own child labor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not quite 16 anyway. But uh, it, uh, it was pretty interesting doing that repetitive work over and over again. You really last a lifetime just thinking about how you kind of zone out while you're doing that work, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, how other workers have to do work. So even when I had my own company years later, mm -hmm. I still had that memory. It was still pretty fresh in my mind. Yeah. And so are you saying that doing the same kind of monotonous work, uh, not, a, not an easy way to make a living? Uh, definitely not an easy way to make a living, um, but also your life is so much more than your work, which... Mm. Is not the case for a lot of professionals where 
your life and your work intersect in a very large manner. Right. That's very interesting because you put in your, I guess, eight hours or whatever it was, and um, you haven't put your you haven't put your your soul into that work. Um, that's right. Because just, you don't have to. You're just passing time almost. Yeah, it's such a different way to think about work, isn't it? Because as you say, so many people, professionals and lots of people, and I talk about work-life balance sometimes, and there is no balance anymore. Um, it's almost like it's the same thing, right? It certainly feels that way and certainly felt that way this weekend. <laughs> what were you doing this weekend? Oh, working. Working. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so you were um, – well, let me ask you this. Do you think that experiences, I guess you, you can speak to yourself about yourself, but maybe others as well, to the extent that you've either thought about it, talked to people, maybe even looked into it. Uh, to what extent do some of these kind of child or t- early teenage year experiences working, could be with, with, with a father or mother, could be independent, uh, have, have a long-lasting impact? Because you said, you know, yourself, you still think about, and when you, had, when you were running your own company, you still think about that kind of monotonous assembly line work, so it must have had an impact. Yeah, I think it does. I think we don't realize it at the time, but it, it does carry forward. And um, another thing I did uh, around the same time is I had a paper route delivering papers. Oh, really? Morning morning papers, which meant getting up before the crack of dawn and uh, mm-hmm. delivering them on my bicycle. And <clears throat> I uh, I feel like I learned a lot about business during the course of delivering papers and having that paper out. Well, what was the curriculum? That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, d- I certainly appreciate it now, which is that, uh, you know, you have to, uh, at that time, you'd buy the newspapers from the newspaper company, and then you'd have to uh, sell them. You have to go around and try to get new customers so you expand your business. So that means uh, greater market penetration, in mm. a sense, in your neighborhood. Mm. Uh, and you have to, of course, deliver the product on time, on a regular basis, mm-hmm. uh, you had a lot of customer relation moments uh, during that process, and uh, especially comes to light when you actually have to collect the money from the customer, which uh, is a whole other adventure when you're a uh, a young man, teenager, and uh, people actually, I found, try to avoid paying the paper boy. Wow, avoid. I mean, it was like <laughs> fifty cents or something, right? Right. So you have to be persistent at collecting money. That's what that comes down to. Right, which actually is a pretty relevant lesson for, right. for anyone. Exactly. See, it all makes sense. So maybe that's uh, that would be an interesting book. You know, uh, What was that book about? Everything I learned about business or about life, I learned in kindergarten. And your version is everything I learned about business, uh, I learned on the paper route. Yeah, that would be a, a good little uh, short story book, I guess. A short story book. Um, so what type of kid were, were you? It sounded like you were doing you know, different jobs. And um, um, we were given some chores, and uh, I don't think you grew up in a very affluent um, um, household, but probably, I mean, you tell me, was it middle class or? Uh, uh, yeah, I was, I'd say, lower middle class. Yeah. Um, my parents had uh, grown up in uh, New York City and moved out to mm-hmm. uh, Connecticut, and um, they were both product of Depression-era kind of parents uh, themselves. Uh. So, uh, you yeah, know, they're pretty frugal. And yeah. I, I remember my dad making a, his first snow shovel out of a piece of plywood and two by four. Mm. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of uh, issues that revolved around economy and right. uh, spending and right. that sort of thing. And earning money was kind of 
a basic thing because my parents were going to give me money. and You had to do it. It was expected. Right. And even uh, for college, they were uh, said basically, well, if you want to go to uh, a state school like UConn, you know, we can probably swing that. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go to a fancy school, which I want to go to Trinity College in Hartford, uh, you're going to have to pay for most of that. We're not paying for it. How old were you when this message was delivered? Oh, that message was delivered uh, when uh, I was looking at schools. Okay. And so pretty close to uh, Right. But you had been working um, on a paper route, route uh, working for your dad, I guess. Right. Well, I did have this uh, one great experience, and probably because my parents moved to a good school district mm-hmm. uh, where I was participating in a Saturday program for uh, well, they called it gifted students. I didn't feel particularly gifted, but uh, we'd go up to the Talcott Mountain Science Center in Avon, Connecticut every uh, Saturday mm-hmm. and do all kinds of uh, slightly independent work, research work. Well, not research, deep research, but research from a mm-hmm. high schooler's point of view, a junior high schooler's point of view. Uh, but they uh, also had access to the Dartmouth Timesharing Service, for example, uh-huh. up there in uh, the Talk Mountain Science Center. And I learned how to do programming in basic using an old teletype. And You were an early uh, coder? Is that what I'm hearing? I was a very early coder. I could have been Bill Gates if I just pushed could myself have been. a little uh, Just could have been. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was great. And then uh, so the day I turned 16, I was offered a job with a uh, software company, a small time-sharing software company mm-hmm. in Avon. And... Uh, when I came around to looking for colleges because of this need to pay, mm-hmm. uh, I looked at Trinity because it was within commuting distance of where I was already working and getting paid quite well compared to my friends who were washing dishes or mm-hmm. doing other jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I stayed. And probably I was, I would bet, the only person at that college who had a computer terminal in their dormitory room so I could work for my dorm room wow. remotely. What, what, now, what time period are we at? Uh, it would be like 1975, 1976. And the IBM PC came out in 1980 or 82? Yeah, much, much later, yeah. Yeah, and Apple came up, Apple was around by 75 or 76? Uh, there were... Uh, or maybe uh, this was the time of the, what do they call those, those hobby kits? Yeah, those little hobby kits, Altair and other yes. little... Uh, so you had a terminal, like a dumb terminal? I had a dumb terminal, CRT terminal, which was very fancy those days, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was connected uh, remotely to a time sharing service, which we might call the cloud now. But uh, yeah, now how did they do that? This was a completely different era through phone lines, I, I guess. That's right. You'd call up on your uh, your phone and uh, plug the phone into uh, some rubber sockets that was part of the modem, mm-hmm. and then uh, using audio essentially the Digital information would be exchanged between the computer, which was many miles away, and mm-hmm. the terminal. So I remember the, those early days of, of call, call up that you'd hear, you'd connect, and you hear this these sounds, right, and then bzzz or something, and all kinds of staticky sounds. And yeah, there were a lot of bings and bongs and bings and bongs happening, right? Uh, and uh, boy, that must sound weird to younger people <laughs> listening to this uh, who are, uh, you know. On their uh, iPhones, uh, which we'll get to soon enough as well. Uh, uh, yeah, so what did you do with that, uh, that terminal uh, in your 
Uh, I was writing uh, business software for... Uh, as part of your job. As part of my job for inventory uh, tracking and sales tracking and that sort of thing wow. for a couple of small businesses. And could, could you or did you imagine what type of future would, would happen in computers? Did you, you, did you have any inkling? Because uh, you were there in your pretty early days and were in a lot of others. Yeah, actually, it, um, I was very interested in uh, artificial intelligence. It was still called artificial intelligence in those days. Really? And uh, there, were, there was a lot of interesting work going on at MIT. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to do my own coding to try to emulate the same results that uh, these famous researchers at MIT were doing for programs like ELISA and other learning programs and things that would sort of give the illusion that you were talking to somebody, but it was a very kind of predictable response based on cues you would give it and the words you would type. So uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I'm curious. I mean, what, what qu- qualified as, quote, artificial intelligence in 1975? What did it mean? Yeah, so uh, there was uh, and still is something called a Turing test, which is basically if you put a wall up between you and the computer and you're just communicating via terminal, uh, can you tell that it's a computer on the other side of the wall or is it an actual uh, person? So if you can't tell the difference, then that would qualify in those days Mm -hmm. as a sort of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So so what did you do with with this? Like, What would be a practical use of AI, if any, in those days? Or was it more kind of experimental? Uh, for well, for me, I was just fooling around. You're just I was just it. trying to copy. You're a hacker. I was a hacker trying to copy the kings, and uh, and I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah. I learned a lot. Did you ever meet some of those kings later? Uh, I did not actually. Um, there was a guy I really wanted to meet because the guy that ran this timeshare company was a former uh, CalSpan researcher who had retired and mm-hmm. done, was doing this in his retirement, and. Uh, he had a book of uh, Frank Rosenblatt's book on perceptrons, which is now pretty much very closely related to deep learning that's going on in AI today. You're, you're looking at me like I know the book, but go ahead. I'll, I'll humor <laughs> Sorry, you. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, this is making me think about things from uh, a long time ago. But anyway, it uh, was just very interesting as mm-hmm. to, uh, to me, how can we emulate intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, actually, I kind of got down on computer software as um, – a medium for uh, AI because I had already peeked behind the curtain. I already kind of knew what was going on mm-hmm. there, and I realized that it was just uh, programming and algorithms and wasn't that interesting. What, what, uh, so what made it less interesting for, for you? Well, because I already uh, wrote the program. You know, I know what the, the yeah. algorithm was for right. uh, responding. Same thing happening with computer games. I wound up writing some code for computer games, mm-hmm. simple computer games in those days, and it just broke the allure of any mm-hmm. kind of video game or computer game. Because you could see what was going on behind the curtain. Exactly. And exactly. once you knew that, it wasn't that interesting anymore. That's right. Yeah, so it kind of demystifies it and takes yeah. the fun out of it. Um, and is it the case that um, the same underlying kind of, I don't know, explanatory methods or not the same algorithms, but maybe some elements of the same algorithms are in place, the same logic, let's say, uh, maybe today or over time. I mean, of course, it's way more complex, but is it the same thing at a certain level? might even be simpler. Some simpler. Yeah, some of the uh, you know, shoot 'em up games that uh, kids play or uh, 
other kind of more fantasy-oriented games, mm -hmm. I think, are uh, even simpler, just in multiplayer. So there actually is a, a real body on the other side sometimes. Right. So what got you so uh, so interested in technology? I mean, a, a smart kid growing up in, you know, in a... In a small town, and did your parents? Uh, well, your father was an engineer, and your mom was a stay-at-home mom. Did she go to university? No, and my dad, uh, my mom did not. She easily could have. She still is a very bright yeah. person, uh, but that wasn't the thing in those days. Exactly. And my dad wound up going to uh, night school for, I think it must have been eleven years, maybe. Mm -hmm. I remember going to his college graduation. Is that right? Yeah. So it was every evening he would come home and hit the books and, mm -hmm. and work on his courses. And it just dragged out, you know, doing a full bachelor's degree Because he was in working, the evening. He was right. working full time and he needed to make a living. He had to support right. his family. Exactly. And so we're, so you were going to school when he was going to school, although you were in high school, I guess. Or right. right. Yeah. Well, I was a little younger, but in uh, yeah, junior high school. Yeah. Did you look at his homework? Or did he look no, at <laughs> no. You could have helped each other. I, I remember later there was some professor that was still around when I was at Trinity that had taught my dad a course. Uh -huh. and, uh, my dad decided that he'd been uh, mistreated by this particular professor Ooh. and just left a big cloud in my mind for this person. So it was, and so you met him, actually? So that person I met, yeah. And what did and you say he, to this person? Oh, nothing. I was very polite. Yeah, but. Of but you were thinking about it the whole time. I was thinking about it. And you were looking time. at him, talking to him maybe for a short time, I don't know. But you're thinking, did he really do this kind of nasty thing to my dad? <laughs> I don't even know if it was a nasty thing. Well, but, uh, something that stuck with him in any event. That's right. So what makes someone get into kind of in, into coding and into hacking and into kind of artificial intelligence in the very, very early days of, of kind of modern technology? Um, I mean, why was that your path? I think it was opportunity. I mean, I, the, I was at this Talking Mountain Science Center, and they had these uh, facilities available. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't like a, a giant place or anything, but sure. they did have all these kind of mm -hmm. edgy things. And uh, just having a chance to yeah. experience them and, and play with them was uh, right. was really the draw. I mean, I think that, um, uh, and this kind of gets into part of my philosophy about education or inventiveness, but I think that um, when you leave children alone in an unprogrammed environment mm -hmm. and they have to kind of create their own thing, whether it's picking up some sticks and pretending they're something else mm -hmm. or here's a computer, go have a fun time mm -hmm. with it, explore it. Um, that open-ended sort of right. uh, opportunity mm -hmm. is uh, really helps develop creativity far better than programmed learning activities. Like you might see sending kids to, you know, um, after-school programs. And, mm -hmm. you like know. robotics camp and things like this? Or, depends well, on how it's done, I Yeah, robotics camp, it also depends on how it's done. Yeah. And most of them are actually done pretty well. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking about uh, more formal, like taking an extra math class or something in the evening. You see what happens in Korea, for example, when uh -huh. the students are and you spend time in there, school. Yeah. After school, they go to school, and they send, spend time in school till 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night sometimes. These Every are, single day. These are high school kids. Right. Uh, uh, even, even younger. Even younger. And you think that's not a good way to enhance your creative potential or fulfill what you might, I, might have. It's a great way to get good scores on exams. Yeah. Not a good way to be creative. Not a good way to be creative. Very interesting. 
Um, um, you know, I was reading something about uh, something that Walt Whitman wrote, um, and he said something like, uh, um, if you want to be creative, you have to forget everything you learned in school and in church. Uh, <laughs> and that's not exactly what you're saying, but it's not that far removed either. Yeah, um, yeah and so uh, in your case, you were, you were doing this, this Saturday program, and that's where you kind of had free reign, and you just were given, given the opportunity to play with computers, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was a transformative experience for me. Yeah. And it's, uh, actually, it's very closely related to experiential learning, which is something we're very fond of here at uh, Dartmouth and elsewhere. Yes, that's right. That's right, where you kind of grapple with something first, and you make a lot of mistakes, and you learn what you learn, and then afterwards... Um, somebody, a facilitator, might help you draw out some of the insights, maybe tell you some of the theory or ideas behind it. Um, get past some of the barriers, perhaps. Get, back, get past some of the barriers, yeah. Um, I'm curious that if this um, Saturday program was focused on um, biology or chemistry, as opposed to, I don't know if this was physics, but certainly was engineering, computers, computer science. Actually, it was, more, it was more of a natural sciences kind of thing, so they... Some kids were attracted to astronomy, or which I was too, geology, meteorology, which I spent quite a bit of time hmm. studying, launching weather balloons and tracking them and trying did, to measure you did all that. wind flow. Yes. Yeah. Why, why do some people, so this is a slight aside, I have two friends that are, um, they're not scientists um, or professors, uh, they do whatever they do, but they are just so fanatical about the weather, and they track this, and they watch this, and they look at this, and they're... Uh, they're amateurs, to be sure, um, and I don't know that I uh, that that I see this kind of deep dive into some area like that. I mean, maybe just odd, you know, s- sample size of two friends of mine. But now that you said it, you made me think about it. What is it that's so exciting about this? That about the weather? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, in California, the weather's not that exciting. No, it's always the same, right? Almost. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's just fascinating. It's sort of. Um, quantitatively looking at our natural world, and, you know, it changes on a much uh, faster time scale, yeah. which is more interesting than, say, watching continents drift or something like that. that well, the, the, that's right. If that's, the, if that's the comparison point, yeah. Right. Um, um, by the way, back to uh, something you said about your, your dad and the business he started and you were working in the assembly on. Was it a successful business? Did it work, did it work out? Yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't one of these exponential growth. Sure. Uh, businesses that um, we hear more about today, but it uh, was successful, put food on the table, and right. Uh, right. I would say it didn't quite send me to college, but it sent my younger sister to college for sure. Okay. So. Because it took a bit more time to get going. And, that's uh, right. Yeah. So you're, uh, you have one sibling? Actually, I have two. I have a younger brother who's a mechanical engineer, very talented. Yeah. And that's a much gonna... younger sister who's... Uh, was the one I was referring to. Right, I was, that, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. And what, what do they do? They all, are they also kind of, I don't know, inventors, professors, science-oriented? So the brother is, to some extent. My brother definitely is. He uh, creates um, unique machines on a custom basis for uh, certain types of manufacturing operations. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has a problem, it's a machine that doesn't actually solve this problem, and he designs a machine to solve that problem mm-hmm. and then moves on to the next Challenge. Right. It sounds like, yeah, once you figure out what's working behind it, sounds like a, a Fossum family trait here. <laughs> well, I always try to 
get my brother to like make more than one of something so that he could actually uh, I, yeah there's an benefit model from that. in there but uh, <laughs> um, and your sister did she get into, go into science or engineering or uh, she's more on the medical side yeah so uh, yeah she's um, definitely uh, part of the family in that regard yeah yeah so um, okay you um, you're writing all this software you went to Trinity and um, and college you enjoyed college yeah I wound up majoring in uh, Physics, which it turned out I, I loved and mm-hmm. uh, just fell into it. It, mm-hmm. it came to me very easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, engineering, which was a little bit more computer engineering related things. So. Yeah. Did you have any um, special faculty members that you remember, that you recall? Oh, I remember Dave Algren, who was a prof- young professor at the time and mm-hmm. now is, uh, he's retired now, but mm-hmm. uh, still very much about and still a very good friend and mm-hmm. mentor. Um, and he was uh, also let me do a lot of exploring and working with uh, different things. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you you brought up now a couple of times, you know, almost like your philosophy about um, inventing. And I was going to ask you about about that because uh, you've done it time and again, and not only done it, but I guess you've thought about that process. So let's uh, let's kind of dig into it a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, so um, are inventors born or made? Well, I don't know. I think that uh, I think we're all inventors. We're, mm-hmm. Human beings are naturally creative, and um, some people, everybody has the, the potential to invent. I think everybody does invent. Uh, they just don't know that they're inventing. For, for example, uh, you think about the uh, the old timers that came to this country mm-hmm. and out here in the woods of yeah. New Hampshire right. and come up with problems. They have to find solutions to those problems mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wind up uh, inventing techniques or mm-hmm. tools or uh, other things to, uh, to solve those problems. But mm-hmm. um, probably didn't think too much that they were an inventor. I mean, they were just... But you'd say they They're were. just getting by and yes. solving things. And I, I think we all do that all the time. So anytime we're trying to solve a problem... That's a form of invention, would you say, or only when uh, you solve it in a new way? Well, so when we're solving it and come up with a solution, mm-hmm. even if it's not the best solution or maybe it doesn't even work <laughs> at all, or you find out soon enough, that is all part of the inventive process. Um, so, you know, being an inventor uh, with a patent means that you're the, at least in the documented way, you're the first person to sure. think of that particular solution for a particular problem. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's uh, it's in all human beings, and uh, we all have the capability to create mm. new things. And it, you know, it's. And I should say that I feel like creativity is um, is the same thing, whether it's in the arts, or if it's in engineering, mm-hmm. or it's in uh, other fields of science. Um, it's it's innate to humans, and it's innate to uh, other creatures in the world, too. So, you know, chimpanzees and crows and everything, they also invent tools to accomplish certain things. Mm. So it's maybe it's just part of having a, a brain bigger than a peanut. You know? I, I think a lot of people uh, might, might be questioning this because they see most of us see, and maybe I'm wrong too, but we see people going through their lives and it doesn't look like they're, it doesn't look like they're inventing very much. They're just right. 
surviving. They're doing what they need to do. Yeah, well, I think it depends on the circumstances mm-hmm. and what the necessity is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're asking if we are born inventors or we're taught to be inventors. For, for and example. I, and I feel that it's it's part of our uh, instinctual behavior. Yeah, yeah. And so if it doesn't come out, um, would you say that's a reasonable premise or not? Uh, like if it doesn't come out implies, well, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm wondering whether you think that's even true. But if it doesn't come out, it's because, you know, your life and your life experiences didn't enable you to fulfill that kind of innate, as you say, innate. Or you weren't required to do it is another way of looking at it. You weren't required to do it, but wouldn't you seek out a place if invention is part of your DNA? Wouldn't you seek out a place to exercise that, that DNA? Well, I, you know, again, this goes back to uh, what we were talking about in childhood of whether you have a chance to, um, if you're like consumed all the time with input, you know, watching TV or mm-hmm. playing video games all the time, or whether, in fact, you uh, have some break time and you have to create your own your own universe, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it helps um, develop some of those talents. Yeah. But I think they're still innate. Uh, and so uh, when someone has free time, I call it free time, uh, and they're not doing anything, you would say that's, like, good. Just let them live and look and see, and eventually they'll try something. might not work, might not, might not be great, but they'll just, they'll just do it. As opposed to having, uh, you know, so many, so many people have these scripted lives, lives and kids, the way we bring up kids especially. Uh, is that kind of a central element then to creativity or invention? Yeah, I mean, all these things are in uh, certain limits. You wouldn't want to put somebody in a isolation chamber for you know, <laughs> a long period of time. That, that would be tough, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, some playtime. I think some free time is is a good. What thing. about that ten thousand idea uh, hours idea? Do you know that one? Um, Malcolm Gladwell popularized ten thousand hours before you become an expert, an expert at something. Yeah, right. and he, he used. Bill Gates is an example. I think he used hockey players or something else as an example. What do you think about that? Well, I think 10,000 hours of doing something, you better become an expert at it. <laughs> Even if it's on the assembly line and, and moving parts. You, be- uh, you, you, better, you better be good at it. Right. Or, or else, you know, what were you doing? Yeah. So um, uh, another thing people uh, sometimes think about when it comes to invention is that it's kind of like the eureka moment, right? You're walking down the street, Eureka, I just thought of it. Or um, who, who's the one, was it, uh, was it Einstein that said 1% um, inspiration, 99% perspiration? Uh, you, you know those. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure who said it, but I certainly know the saying. Yeah. Is it true, do you think? Or Oh, absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely true. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think that there's very few people that are walking down the road and suddenly think of something new that they hadn't been thinking of before or hadn't been challenged with mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. I think I think those events are more like the, you've already presented with a problem or a challenge mm-hmm. uh, and you are, your subconscious is working on it all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally uh, bubbles up to your consciousness and that's when you feel like, oh, Eureka, I just had this idea popped yeah. into my head. Right. So you're, you're working on it all the time whether you know it or not. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and then the eureka moment is, is like uh, is almost like a recognition of something that was that was bubbling up. Yeah, it's like a little part of your brain starts yeah. waving its hand, saying, "Hey, 
I know right. the answer to that. Right, right. Well, we're, we're going to take a break, and, and when we come back, I'm going to ask uh, Eric if that was part of the process that led to uh, your work on, uh, on on cameras and some of the uh, um, great inventions you've been involved with. We're with Eric Fossum. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the SIDCast. Every now and then I have a commercial sponsor, and the following commercial is brought to you by your kids. Let me play. Let me explore. Don't tell me what I should do all the time, and definitely don't do my homework for me. And you know, when I'm a bit older and I'm applying to college, whatever you do, don't write my applications for me. Let me play. This commercial was brought to you from your kids. We're back with Eric Fossum on the SIDCast. We've been talking uh, to Eric about his life a little bit and about invention and innovation and creativity and where it comes from. And uh, I wanted to uh, pick up this segment by going back to that theme on, uh, on invention. And uh, um, so, you know, imagine you're, you're the king and the king decrees, I want more invention in my kingdom. What would the king do to make that happen? Well, I like the idea of being king. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I uh, uh, have had this really positive experience. I'm uh, a member of the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and the National Inventors Hall of Fame does a program for elementary school kids called Camp Invention. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it runs for a week in the summertime, and the kids come to school, and uh, we try to uh, help them kind of discover their inner inventor this process mm. and uh, it's kind of a STEM related program but there's no formal teaching really the, the kids come in and uh, one day they might be disassembling stuff that you would normally find around the house electronics or other things and looking inside things and seeing how they work might I'm, get a trouble at home doing it but that's uh, that's right yeah it's a yeah. destructive thing but it's got to be donated stuff the parents know <laughs> is, is being taken apart but satisfying that kind of curiosity sure. about what's inside mm-hmm. here and what can i do with the uh, little pieces i just took out of the dvd player and right. what are they good for others are uh, you know more structured where there's actual um things that they try to create problems that they try to solve with uh, mm. materials that are, uh, and for camp invention, they come in a box. So they try to solve it with this uh, curriculum in a box. But they, uh, you know, solve uh, like smart houses or robot dogs or other things. Um, or even, uh, I remember visiting one camp where they had to do uh, stomp rockets and land the rocket, you know, it's kind of an air stomp, launch this rocket into the air, and it goes 20 feet and lands, try to land it in a pool, which was they called him the moon, right? <laughs> and so I remember uh, this uh, girl, she had uh, taken her, made, built a rocket. Um, it was like decorating a, a plastic bottle, really. <clears throat> but she put feathers and other streamers on it and everything. And mm-hmm. She put it on the stomp. She stomped it, and it uh, went flying and uh, didn't make it very far. You know, she picked it up and she looked at it and she said, oh, it's got too much stuff on it. I need to take away some stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she took a couple of things off, put it back on, mm-hmm. and blammo, went right into uh, the middle of this they pool. Landed. So, you know, here was like, uh, it was an experiential learning right. sort of thing where right. she like figured out that the reason why it didn't go was, I think she didn't call it air resistance or anything, <laughs> but that's what it was, right? And uh, and then she solved the problem. Right. And uh, basically giving... Uh, 
people, a creative environment where they can try things out and uh, don't feel bad about failing, where they can uh, try and try again. I mean, sometimes something is just a bad idea and you should give it up. But trying again in a safe way um, where you're not judged. It's not like regular school where you better get the right answer the first no, time. No grades the test. here in camp invention. That's right. Uh, and so I, I think that process is, I mean, the kids are like all excited. They're just, you know, a uh, randomly distributed group of kids yeah. in the summer, but they all come away extremely excited and uh, big changes in their attitude towards uh, STEM learning as well, just by having this creative, safe experience. And right. Camp invention. Right. So, are they? Um, so, are these gifted kids, or just any any old kids that want to go to well, this? Well, every kid is gifted, but uh, they're that is uh, a really good answer. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but they're uh, they're just uh, kids that uh, just kids are uh, they or their parents are uh, or both hopefully are are interested in this opportunity and mm-hmm. uh, and get a chance to go. So, if someone listening wanted to know about Camp Invention for the kids? I guess they could Google that. Is that the Google Camp Invention, yeah. It's part of the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and uh, yeah. hopefully there's a camp in next summer uh, near them. There are multiple camps around the, around the country? There's like 1,500 camps around the country. 1,500? That's right. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great program. That's fantastic. So what happens when they go back to regular school? Uh, well, so I don't have personal experience, but what I've heard uh, teachers say is that, because <clears throat> by the way, they... There's a secret to camp invention. Uh-huh. And the secret is that we're also teaching teachers who work at camp invention how to teach STEM and creativity to kids. Because uh-huh. a lot of elementary school teachers don't know how to do this. Really? So they get experience at teaching it. They get to take the materials back to the classroom. So the uh, teachers are energized. The kids are energized anyway, mm-hmm. even from the short experience over the summer. And uh, uh, it seems to be, uh, I mean, we... It has been running enough years, maybe 20 years, to, to know really whether it's going to create a whole new generation of inventors or not. Mm. Uh, but I think it's a pretty good experience, even if that's not the case. Absolutely. It's an experience just in, in that moment for those kids to, to, to do that. Although I, the, 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 the data analyst in me thinks, wonders, you know, have they been, you guys been tracking this? So you could see as uh, you know, and compared to some other group, and higher percentage going to college, higher percentage going to STEM, um, this type of thing. Right. Yeah, I think the uh, some of the analytics that are done, kind of ad hoc. Yeah. Uh, are very positive. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally believable. Can we replicate anything like that in schools? Well, let's talk about universities because that's you know we live in a university world here at Dartmouth, um, and I think about what. Uh, say our students in, in the business school do, and they go to, they go to class, they go to another class. It's not a lot of time in between. This is, um, you know, it's not a lot of time in between. We talk about reflection being important. Uh, we talk about it all the time. We don't give them a lot of time to do that. Um, is there a lot of room for experimentation? Uh, again, I'm kind of nodding, uh, shaking my head a little. I'm not so sure. But maybe maybe you do better in, in you know in engineering where you live and breathe this thing. But I mean, how do we how do we do this? How do we keep it going? Well. Uh, <clears throat> Certainly in uh, the arts, it's it's very experiential. Uh, students, you know, play music or create music yeah, or yeah, create yeah. Uh, visual arts. Yeah. Uh, in engineering, students do uh, creative projects, solving problems mm-hmm. uh, as part of their coursework. Mm-hmm. Um, and work in teams to solve problems, so they get that uh, experience that way. And uh, most of them love that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business side... You know, things that we're doing in the entrepreneurial program, both at Tuck and in the Magnuson Center for Entrepreneurship, 
are very experiential. You know, kids are uh, kids or young adults are uh, learning uh, about entrepreneurship in a safe environment. They can mm-hmm. kind of work on a, a business plan, and right. you know, many of these will not really turn into anything, or the student mm-hmm. goes on to something else later. But it gives them that experience, that firsthand experience. They work through all the problems and the issues of how to create a new enterprise and right, right. all the elements that have to go mm-hmm. into that, plus the teamwork and um, the emotional IQ part of it as well as the regular IQ part. Uh, so I think that happens in Tuck, and I think it happens uh, here mm-hmm. on campus also. Right. You know, the, uh, the, the key elements in, say, adult education – uh, or how adults learn is you gotta uh, you gotta have a body of knowledge or content um, or insights. Uh, you have to have some grappling with that or experimenting with that or playing with that, and you gotta have feedback and lots of it. And they don't have to go in that order, of course. Uh, and so I think what you're talking about, um, Eric, is these experiential activities. You're doing that experience first. Uh, and you're making those mistakes. It's like the little girl that, you know, has too much stuff on that rocket. Better take right. something off and see what happens. Uh, and then maybe later, um, I, I don't know that she's necessarily going to get a lecture on air resistance, but in college you might get that lecture or you might learn a little bit more. And you connect the experience that you had to what you're learning about. And it helps also, kind of puts a picture in your mind to uh, whatever it is you're talking yeah. about. And what about, what about feedback? So in real life, there's a ton of feedback. If something works, it doesn't. Um, and in business, right. people are very quick to tell you. Uh, in school, we have feedback, uh, but it's, I, think it's, I think it's actually quite limited in, in my view. What, what do you think? Uh, well, again, I think that uh, yeah, the feedback is basically grading. We have to assess how well we think the student has mastered the yeah, material. I mean, that's and as, the an, as an instructor, I... It's always hesitant to really because it's how hard can you how can you tell whether a student has mastered it or not except to have them do it you know, do something with it repeat it back to you or something <laughs> and uh, see if they can uh, they can do it uh, experiential learning though you know on the other hand it's that is real feedback right you um, you go to create a uh, an engineering project and you make it and it solves mm-hmm. the problem or it doesn't solve the problem mm-hmm. or it solves the problem but it could be better. And you get that feedback like, oh, you know, this is uh, uh, works, but it's going to be super expensive. So, you know, how can you accomplish mm-hmm. the same thing mm-hmm. but with a, a smaller or, or less costly bill of materials, uh, things like that. So that's it's feedback, but it's, a, it's yeah. not like from a person to a person. It's almost like self-discovered feedback. Right, right. So, Eric, back to, back to you. Um, after uh, after Trinity, you went, uh, I guess, directly for a PhD? I uh, went directly to Yale and worked on a PhD there. I wasn't, I wasn't actually sure I was going to do a PhD at Yale. I, uh, my uh, fiancé at the time was a year behind me at Trinity, and uh, so I was just trying to stay in the Connecticut orbit uh, while I... That's true. They're not that far apart. Yep. And then, uh, but I loved it. I really uh, yeah. had such a good time at Yale. It was... Graduate school was like the best time of my life. Really? Yeah. So, so what made it so great? You know, I think it was just that uh, I got to do all this fun stuff for four years or five years of, you know, it's like, wake up, what do I need to do next tomorrow? And, yep. uh, and do it and execute it and learn something along the way and discover new problems mm. and work on solving those mm. problems. And, yeah. well, I was like a, a pig in my pen. I was just uh, so happy. 
I'm, I'm trying to extrapolate a, li- extrapolate a little bit from that to people that are not, um, say, in science or getting PhD program, whatever they're doing, what are the key elements that m- would make them so happy doing whatever they're doing? Um, and uh, so it's, it's, of course, they have to have fun with it. They probably look at it as fun more than work, I would think. Um, um, has to be interesting. Has to be fascinating to them. Right. Right. They feel like they're accomplishing something that they care about. Right. And part of that is the feedback that you get the even feedback. from your own self-directed work. Yeah. It's a fantastic thing when people have that. I, you know, I've, I've had it my own, um, not just education, but a lot of my career. Many others have too, but many others do not. Um, it reminds me of, you know, the, the assembly line story you, uh, you shared earlier. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, it's, uh, we're taught, we're, we're, we're looking at the world a little bit differently. And, and I know that, uh, but I, uh, my wish is for everyone to have that type of career, or at least as much as you possibly can, and to find that type of uh, job, um, that type of uh, calling almost. It's a calling <laughs> where, where uh, it's, not, uh, it's not work. It is work, but it's not work. Because you said when we first started talking, I think you said something like, you know, you were working on the weekend um, this past uh, weekend, and um, yeah, work, but you loved it. You, you still love it. So, well, there are other things I wouldn't mind doing with my time, too, but yeah. I still love Which it. you do, I think. Uh, yeah. Which you do. Uh, okay, so we're back in Yale. You got your Ph.D., and then you went to uh, Colum- Columbia? I taught at Columbia. Uh, for how many years? Uh, it was about six years in total. Six years. And is that after that that you went to Caltech? Yeah, in about my fifth year or something, uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is uh, a NASA laboratory, mm-hmm. which is operated by Caltech in Pasadena, California, Mm -hmm. um, recruited me to come work on problems they were having in cameras and spacecraft, which by that time, uh, that element at the heart of every camera, the part that receives light and turns it into electrical signals, it's called an image sensor, Mm -hmm. uh, electronic chip, uh, that had become my specialty by the time I was at uh, Columbia, Mm -hmm. even at Yale. Uh, and so they wanted me to come and work on problems they were having with this sensor at the heart of all these NASA spacecraft cameras. Um, so I uh, always wanted to work in the space program and uh, excited about science and all those sorts of things. Yeah, it sounded and, like a dream job. Well, I mean, I was uh, born in 1957, which was in the same month of Sputnik. Wow. Um, not that I was aware of it, of course, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just seems like my life has been... Uh, in sequence with uh, the whole space program. So I grew up uh, watching all those uh, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo missions mm-hmm. and landing mm-hmm. on the moon and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the chance to be involved in a space program, which has been my dream as a child, but when I got older, I didn't, you know, I'm doing working on electronics. Who would, what does that have to do with the space program? And suddenly uh, having this. It's like the key fitting into the lock. It, was it had like, a lot uh, to do with this. Yeah, it right? had a lot to do. So, so what? Uh, so what? Were, so what did you do? So you, you worked on you worked on um, you worked on the camera, but one particular aspect of it, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, so this electronic device, the, the device was called a charge coupled device (CCD), which was the basis of. Most of our cameras in those days. Uh, you remember those big camcorders that you would? Oh my God, I had one. Carry around with a big they battery. It was a, had like a brick yeah, battery yeah, on the yeah. back that would last for like half one. an hour or something like that. 
Yeah, so it was a it was kind of a bulky camera uh, technology, and mm-hmm. uh, because of the way the CCD operates, it would require a lot of power to operate and uh, a bulky camera. And that was true in uh, NASA spacecraft cameras too. Even they had more to have so. these big bulky, big bulky cameras. cameras the size of a small refrigerator or something uh, with all the, the electronics payload. in it. Wow! And that would all add to payload, mass, and volume, mm. and uh, power. I mean, what happens when you're far away from the sun? Where does the power come from? Right. Unless you bring along your own little nuclear generator, it's mm. you're you're out of luck. If so you this need is a, lot a serious. Power. This is a serious problem. Yeah, actually, it's worse. It's uh, in space. There's a lot of cosmic radiation, mm-hmm. and this cosmic radiation can basically is like a wear out mechanism for electronics. So they start to fail. Hmm. Uh, and so, who wants to uh, tr- have a spacecraft travel for years and years and years to Saturn or something? And you turn the camera on, and oops, it's worn out in the on the journey. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of concerns about this, and so we were thinking about. How do we go about changing the technology so that uh, it, it will last longer? And, in fact, the head of NASA for all of NASA missions is saying, hey, we got to do things faster, better, and cheaper. And uh, that was, you know, from rockets all the way down to electronics. Mm. All those things were true. Right. So that was kind of the, the problem that I, I faced that led to, you know, having to be creative with a, a new kind of solution. So what was that new kind of solution? Yeah, so uh, I came up with uh, this uh, slightly different way to uh, skin the cat. It was called uh, Complementary Metal Oxide (laughs) Semiconductor, which is abbreviated uh, CMOS or CMOS. CMOS. Uh, Yeah, CMOS, uh, which is the the recipe that's used by most mainstream microelectronics anyway. So uh, the CCD was not in the mainstream recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that meant you couldn't mix a lot of other electronics on the same chip. So you'd have separate electronics, and that was part of the bulkiness problem. Uh, so if we could do everything in CMOS, uh, we would have a camera on a chip. And so once we figured out how to make a good image sensor in a CMOS process, uh, we uh, were able to make this camera on a chip and put all the electronics uh, on the same chip as the little pixels, the light-sensitive pixels, um, and uh, shrink the size of the camera. so that, uh, Shrink it to how, how big are we talking about now? Well, it depends if you include the lenses or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, I thought we could make it the size of about a gambling die, you know, maybe a centimeter by centimeter by centimeter, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, and then these days, make it even much smaller, 10 times at least smaller than that. So it's gone from that big camcorder you yes. would carry around. Now you just, you could do recording right off of your iPhone. Off the iPhone easily. That's yeah. right. So the camera, and I'm lifting up my, my iPhone here, my cell phone. The camera here, do you have something to do with that? Yeah, that uses my technology. That uses your technology. A- everyone who's listening to this podcast um, on their phones, um, they're carrying your technology. Yeah, phone. probably. There's probably. at least two cameras, one front-facing, one rear-facing. Right. They both use uh, CMOS image sensor chips, those cameras. They're used in, uh, not only there, but they're used in regular cameras these days. They're used in automobiles. 
They're used in little pills that you might swallow to take a look at your small intestines. They're in there too. um, Yeah, so they're really uh, pretty ubiquitous. In fact, there's uh, about 5 billion cameras made every year now using that CMOS image sensor technology. That you invented? That use use my invention, yes. Wow. (laughs) 5 billion a year? 5 billion per year, yeah. Wow, that's better than McDonald's. Right. Actually, people, uh, another statistic, fun fact, is that people upload about maybe 10 billion pictures in total across the planet every day mm. through the Internet. Mm. 10 billion pictures uploaded. And that couldn't happen without these tiny cameras with this quality. Yeah. And as I uh, like to joke, about half of them are pictures of cats, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's but another course, way to skin the cat. There yes, you go. You went full right. circle on that. Wow. So... Uh, so you invented this uh, CMOS technology for cameras. That's called CMOS image sensor. Image sen- sensor. Uh, when you were employed by uh, Caltech Jet yeah, Propulsion so, Lab. So JPL. we were working under contract to NASA, mm-hmm. but I was an employee of Caltech. That's so correct. So you know where I'm going with this question. Yeah, keep going. That's okay. Great. Does Caltech get all of the royalties after all this time of $5 billion a year of these cameras? Uh more or less, yes. But, uh, you know, I'm not privy to the deals that mm. they cut. But the first people that, uh, or company that Caltech licensed this new technology was the company we started. Mm-hmm. So, uh, actually, as a, I, I tried as a government employee to get a lot of U.S. companies interested in this technology. Uh, but there were no takers because CCDs were mainstream and they were all being done in Japan and it just wasn't part of American industry. And I was like, hey, you guys, we ought to be doing this, right? This is taxpayer-funded research results. You're right. Um, and, th- and they said no? Just generally not interested. Who were the they in this? Who were, did you talk to them directly? Or yeah, yeah. It's places team? like Motorola and Intel and National Semiconductor. Top places. Yeah, top places. And they, and they said, like, like, why did they say no? Well, that is a, a mystery for sure. But I, uh, from a business point of view, I think they were busy doing other things, yeah. and uh, they weren't sure about the ecosystem. The Japanese own the ecosystem also. Uh, so there are a lot of hard things that you would have to do to get started yep. in this business. Um, so uh, it wasn't they weren't interested. They, were, they thought it was kind of a cool idea, yeah. but um, just didn't fit into their current business plans. So is that why you started your own company? To Yeah. Well, actually, even Kodak uh, – you know, Kodak was interested. The engineers were interested. Because they got it. They understood it. Right. Uh, but uh, higher up, they weren't uh, so so sure. And, they, of course, they were chemists. You know, Kodak thought of itself as a chemical company. Yes. Um, so that should have been a home run, but was not. Kodak, so we, Kodak sorry, Kodak could have owned, I don't know about owned, but they would, have, would have had a, a license. They could have leapfrogged everybody else. They could have leapfrogged everyone else. And they'd have these little cameras on my phone. They'd have that technology. Right. Interestingly enough, the self-contained digital camera was also invented at Kodak. And Kodak also wasn't interested in pursuing that. The self-contained digital... Kind of what we think about is a, uh, a digital camera these days, a uh, okay. DSLR or something like right. that. They invented yeah. that. Steve Sesson invented that, yeah. An engineer. 
there. And a fellow member of the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard his stories. Uh, I can imagine bit. sitting around with a beer at the end of the day at one of your conferences talking stories. Oh, oh my yeah, God. Yeah. It was great uh, to have those, uh, those conversations with inventors. But uh, so it's not an uncommon problem, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we uh, finally decided to start our own company, Photobit. Um, and uh, my wife and I started it. She was a fellow engineer, also working with uh, my mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. at JPL. And uh, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, fortunately, um, we did okay. I guess, I guess so. Uh, are you still, do you still have that business? Is that one of the things in your portfolio these days? Because I know you've done a bunch of startups along the way. Yeah, well, this was my, my first one, aside from my paper route. Um, and, uh, <laughs> paper route was the first startup, yeah. okay. <laughs> the uh, uh, Photobit, no, Photobit uh, lived for about uh, six years before it was acquired by Micron, which is a big semiconductor company in uh, Boise, Idaho. Did you go to Micron originally and see if they wanted this idea, the way you did the Motorola and National Semiconductor? Uh, no, Micron wasn't on that early list of companies okay. that... Uh, I was just looking for additional irony, but that's okay. Yeah, no, there was no uh, particular irony there, but uh, um, Micron was a, uh, you know, memory chip company. Mm-hmm. And so there, we thought there were a lot of synergies there, and yeah. there were. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Micron went on to become the world's largest producer of uh, CMOS image sensors for cell phones for quite a few years. Who does this today? Uh, mostly Samsung and Sony. Say Sony's number one, Samsung is number two. And how did they get the technology? Do they also license this or? Well, they just uh, started copying it. Copying it? And, uh, I'm shocked. It. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. Who would have thought guessed? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, eventually, uh, after Photobit had been acquired, mm-hmm. um, and there was, there was a, a number of arrangements, but then uh, Caltech asserted their uh, ownership of that IP uh, against all these big giant companies, and uh, settled with all of them. <clears throat> they settled with Caltech, right? So they kept on producing and selling this, but Caltech would get some cut of, of all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, probably Caltech just got an upfront lump sum, right? Payment. Whatever the terms, whatever the terms were. Do you have any sense of how much value was created from this invention? Uh, you mean from a Dollar Caltech's point of view? Point of view? From a, well, if you know Caltech, but because that might be public, I don't know. But just because they're five billion a year, it's been going on for a long time. Your first startup was acquired. You had other startups. Do you want to include places like Facebook that are like based on people sharing pictures that they take That's with their phones good, or Instagram? That's a very good question. So it's a huge number. <laughs> anyway, yeah. you cut it. It's in it's in the billions to to tens of billions to hundreds of billions, depending on what definition. Yeah, you it's have. kind of mind blowing. It's uh, um, you couldn't have imagined it would be this big. Come on. Nope, I did not at all. And uh, there are many things that I, I applications I didn't imagine, um, and some I did, but uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it's like a life of its own. And, and just to be honest, I mean, so we have the invention, I created the first idea, but the bringing the technology to the point where it is today mm-hmm. is really the work of thousands of engineers mm-hmm. around the world that have uh, worked on this for many years. So it's it's also to their credit that Absolutely. this has become such a ubiquitous technology. Right, right. Absolutely. And um, what about NASA? Um, let's go back to where it all started. Yeah, so... Uh, 
NASA is a very conservative uh, organization, but uh, I think in uh, Mars 2020, which is a mission that's coming up, uh, they'll be using uh, a lot of CMOS cameras in that. They haven't been using it in the mo- in, in the last couple of years. There was one uh, um, not that long ago to uh, to Pluto, I think, wasn't it? The right. Yeah, believe it or not, um, they tend to been using CCDs for those scientific Those giant instruments. things that I... Yeah, all those things that had all those warts. Uh, yeah. They continue to have warts. Um, and, you know, I understand it as a taxpayer. Um, when you uh, go and do the next mission, whatever mission you're on, number mm-hmm. 22, and you're going to do number 23, right. uh, you have a choice. You can either uh, take a camera that has already been used for 22 missions successfully and use it in your mission, or you can try this new technology that no one's used before on a NASA mission. Mm. And by the way, it's going to take a lot of taxpayer money to do this, and uh, it's going to take years of your life to propose the mission. It's going to take years of your life to build the instrument, and it's going to take years to wait while the spacecraft is flying to Pluto or wherever. Uh, And then they're going to turn it on to take a picture. Now... Are you going to risk taking something that hasn't been tried before? Or are you going to go with those uh, that technology that has the 22 success successes legacy? Right, right. So you, it's, you you've, know. E- you've explained it well. It's so much boils down to organizational processes, politics, systems, uh, and leadership. That's it's right. really amazing how much. Even when it comes to kind of this world-breaking technology, they don't automatically get used. Even the, even when you went to Motorola and the others, and they said no, and you said, "Well, that's that's like the question. Why did they say no?" But I'm sure there were all kinds of internal things going on, other projects going on in house. Um, there's a bit of risk, maybe a lot of risk to, to doing something new. Uh, I think it's the lesson of modern technology and and, and business, um, not being willing to take on those seemingly crazy risks means usually the end of your company when others do it and do it better. That's right. I think when you're large, you become risk-adverse. Yeah. And uh, so like the European Space Agency flew a lot of cameras in space. Oh, they did. With the CMOS technology <laughs> already. Yeah, so they had a lot less to lose, basically, and uh, didn't have this big machine and right. legacy to, to deal with. So um, you won the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering just in uh, 2017 based on um, on this invention and maybe related Inventions, I, I, I would take it right, and that's kind of like a Nobel Prize, isn't it? In engineering, something like this. A lot of people consider it the Nobel Prize of uh, engineering because there, there's no, no Nobel decided there shouldn't be a prize for engineering among his uh, in his legacy. He uh, didn't consider engineering to be high enough on the ladder of right endeavors to. And, uh, and actually, there's nothing on leadership, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So uh, it was great, and uh, it was uh, for digital creation of digital imaging sensors, and uh, went to uh, several of us. Uh, the inventors of the CCD were included. and really? uh, From the CCD when it was invented in 1969, and also uh, Nobu Taranishi, who did work on uh, CCDs when they were um, being developed a lot in Japan in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, was another co-recipient. Right. Very exciting. And... Um you know, you've, your, your career has been and I think continues to be um, unbelievably successful. But I want to ask you, if you ever wonder uh, or think about some other track, some other 
career track you may have gone on with the same skill set um, that you, you wonder, you know, I could have done that. Uh, not that you, you regret it, that you, that you didn't do that, but I'm curious because, uh, yeah, I'm curious about that. Well, first of all, um, and you'll hear many inventors and successful people say this. I just will say it also. It's, mm. um, you know, it's not just having the right invention. It's having the right invention at the right time and at the right circumstances. Yeah. Luck is such a huge mm. part of um, success that it's, it's hard to explain to people that, uh, you know, it's good to be prepared and, and mm-hmm. ready to take advantage of situations. But um, it's just a lot of factors you can't control and can't hope to control that lead to success. Right. So uh, could have easily have done all the same things, and yeah, it died. You know, it was another NASA research effort that uh, didn't go anywhere. But you know, let's not forget that you and your uh, wife actually became entrepreneurs, created something. That's true, and uh, and it was part of the f- fact that you know we had created this new technology. Um, and it's like having a child. You want to nurture it and see yeah. it grow, and you're yeah. not going to just like let it. And you were, get, you, die you were probably getting frustrated. Nobody was picking this up. Oh, very frustrated. Very, very frustrated. So, um, yes. Wow. Um, so, if you can go back to talk to your 21 year old self magically, uh, what advice? What story? What would you? What would you tell? Your twenty-one-year-old, uh, the twenty-one-year-old Eric Fossum, um, from from the vantage point of where where you are today. I'm not sure I would believe myself, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you know, at that age, you are uh, you don't really know how things are going to work out, and some anxiety about whether you're going to. Uh, be, be successful or uh, even be able to support yourself or have the same things that you grew up with and uh, be able to go back and tell myself it's all going to work out. Mm-hmm. Take a chill pill. It's, <laughs> it's going to work. Um, yeah, probably the number one thing I would want to tell myself. Yeah, just calm down, relax, step by step. It'll work out. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned your um, your wife was your business partner as well. She's my former wife, actually. Your former wife. Um, so, and you worked with her in business for for the for those six years. Five of those six right. years. Are you are you married now? I'm uh, remarried. Remarried. Where did you meet your partner? Uh, in uh, in Southern California, where the sun always shines. Where the sun always. shines. Can you tell shines. us a story about how you met? Uh, well, it was through a, uh, a mutual friend and, uh, didn't really, uh, like a fix up. Yeah. <laughs> well, not even a fix up. It was more of an introduction and, yeah. uh, had a lot of things in, uh, in common interests and, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, she was a, uh, and still is, you know, she grew up in Southern California, so transplant her here to New Hampshire, uh. That's, was a big move. That's a big move. Yeah. I did that move because my wife and I lived for six years in L.A. before coming up to um, Hanover, New Hampshire. Right. So it's almost the same thing as she grew up in Orange County. And, yeah. Um, she uh, she really likes it up here and uh, fits right in. That's a good thing, I think, all considered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Uh, 
would you say, Eric, that you're today, you're, you're happy? Oh, I'm very happy. I have a new granddaughter who uh, wow. was born just uh, Wonderful. I don't know, nine weeks ago, maybe. And nine weeks ago, a little baby. Yeah, a little baby. So, uh, and uh, I have three uh, great, uh, I mean, three wonderful natural daughters and a great stepdaughter, stepson. Uh, so it's a big family all of a sudden. Right. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, Do they ever ask you about some of these stories about? You know, the research you well, did and what? Because they're all, well, anyone actually, has their, they have their yeah, phones. Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, so my uh, oldest daughter, who got a PhD from Stanford, um, uh, wound up working for Instagram as a data scientist. And uh, as far as I know, she still hasn't told anybody at Instagram oh that, my. Uh, what her dad did. That's funny. She doesn't want to. Does uh, she have your last name? Uh, it's her middle name now, but yeah. Not that anyone would recognize my last name, but... Uh, maybe, maybe not, but there's always some science yeah. geek that So that's, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and uh, uh, my other two daughters uh, grew up with uh, Sabrina and I talking around the kitchen table about Photobit all mm-hmm. the time. Every evening the discussion was about Photobit because yeah. it was like a, yeah. a chance to uh, digest the day. Um, and my kids would always be like, stop talking about Photobit. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so, yeah, they grew up with it, and I think, you know, they're, uh, I think they, they appreciate it, but it's... Um, Did they go in another direction in terms of their own career? Are they growing up now? Yeah, so uh, my middle daughter is uh, just getting her PhD right now in atmospheric science. And, uh, There's a pattern I'm beginning to see here. Yeah, my youngest daughter did an undergraduate degree in uh, geology, another scientist, which I never expected, so... Hmm. Um, even when we try not to have much influence on our kids, we still wind up influencing them anyway. Yeah, this gets us to where we started talking about you growing up and your own your own parents. And while they didn't have advanced degrees, to, to be sure, um, you mentioned your mom stayed at home. Mom was very smart, and your dad probably as well, and certainly had was an entrepreneur. Right. And, and by the way, before I get in trouble, mm. my mom did go on to run uh, the housing authority in the town. That okay. There you go. We got that on record. Yes, good. We got that on record. It's just very interesting to think about, you know, the impact of parents. And, uh, you know, you talk to a lot of parents and they're telling their, especially if they have teenage kids, they're telling them, you know, it's like goes in one ear out the other and they never have any impact, et cetera. But, you know, I think uh, think there's some one part of that brain that kind of absorbs it all. And as much as they might try to expel it, it's, it's sticking in there. And there's a time when it starts to come out. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, Eric, Eric Fossum, thank you so much for being with us on the SIDCast, and thanks for a great chat. Thank you very much. It's been great.